This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, friends. Good to have you aboard our final program coming to you live from Kalamata, Greece, the elite city resort hotel here in this beautiful city. And uh, then later today, I'll be packing up the uh, car with the twin boys, nephew Nick, and of course, the mighty Aphrodite. We'll be riding shotgun as we head on up to Athens, where we'll be for about three days. Then, finally, the final leg home uh, to Toronto uh, later in the week. Loving it here, but quite honestly, can't wait to get home, of course, to Toronto the good. Thanks once again for inviting me into your home, into your uh, living room, your bedroom, or whatever the case may be. Bedroom. Yikes. Hey, it's a family show, folks, but not to worry. You know, I'm a, I'm a Canadian boy, so I always take off my shoes when entering a home. And that's a, a kind of a cultural difference, I found. Uh, when we're uh, out and about here in Greece and we go into someone's home, and I, it's just habit, I, take my, I kick my sandals off, and people say, oh, what are you doing that for? You know, what's that? That's just the way we are. We're Canadian. We buy our milk in bags, and we remove our shoes upon entering a home. What can I tell you? Hey, uh, excited. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I should have an announcement about a new affiliate for the Conspiracy Show in Oregon, which will be our first station there. So fingers crossed, in a couple of weeks, we'll have that announcement. Medford, Oregon, I believe, is the market. So it's just keep on coming. Uh, hey, a special thanks to Chris Whitting at uh, Syndication Networks. He and his staff doing a great job uh, landing new uh, radio stations for the conspiracy show we're going to talk solar storms you've probably heard the buzz a lot of nasa scientists are quite concerned we are in the sort of the peak uh, time now for solar storms of course the sun goes through these 11 year cycles and i believe we are now in the 11th year of that 11 year cycle and this is when the poles, the north and south poles of the sun, yes, the sun has a north and south pole, 
and they attract, uh, and they flip. And the North Pole, apparently, of the sun has already flipped. The South Pole is racing to catch up. And this causes these, these coronal ejections. But NASA scientists and others are very concerned that we are about to witness a mass ejection, a coronal mass ejection that could rival the Carrington event, which took place back in the mid-1850s and knocked uh, uh, telegraphs offline and uh, uh, caused a great deal of havoc with the, uh, the, the railroads and so forth. Imagine, though, if that were to happen in 2013 and we're expecting some sort of solar flare, solar storm impact, given our dependency, of course, on electronics, satellite, computers, sophisticated communication systems, and, of course, our fast electrical grids, we're being warned that these solar storms could wreak havoc, particularly with the electrical grids. In fact, even Lloyds of London weighed in recently and were, uh, were, were sort of weighing the, the uh, insurance implications, particularly in North America. If a solar flare impacts the planet and the resulting electromagnetic pulse could knock these power grids offline, and I'm not talking for a couple of days, they're saying this could have an impact for one or two years in certain communities. And again, the, the corridor they're looking at is New York down to Washington, D.C., about 40 million people. And it could impact elsewhere as well. But this is a frightening scenario. Imagine a power grid being knocked offline for several years, large metropolitan areas, 40 million people left to freeze in the dark. Imagine the, the civil unrest that this could cause, the interruption in the delivery of fuel and groceries, and you get the picture. Apparently, we just narrowly avoided such an impact in late July. And now, again, NASA scientists and others are saying there could be another one within the next four months. So we thought we'd uh, fly this one up the flagpole for the next hour or so because it's that important. And uh, to help us along in this conversation, Ron Patton, publisher of Paranoia magazine. He became the publisher in 2012. In fact, he revived the publication from dormancy. He's a conspiracy researcher and writer, having written articles for Paranoia, Paranoia magazine on CIA mind control. Also, he's written about the historical and spiritual implications of the UFO alien phenomenon. He's published a newsletter from 1994 to 2000 called Endure to the End, which exposed tangent movements and erroneous doctrines within contemporary Christianity. And uh, he's also published a magazine in 2003 titled MKZine, an examination of coercive mind control, evasive human experimentation, and other related abuses. In 2005, Ron was featured in a controversial film documentary titled Triple Expose, which uh, talked about the horrific incidents of abuse and torture of women in, B in the BDM BDSM uh, porn cult. He's provided vital information in showing how the leader was going or using coercive mind control techniques similar to those used in the CIA's MKUltra behavioral modification program from the 1950s to the 1970s. Uh, but as I say, he is now um, 
at the helm of Paranoia Magazine, and it's always a pleasure to have Ron Patton here on The Conspiracy Show. Ron, how are you? Doing quite well. Thank you for having me on, Richard. Uh, listen, before we get into uh, this uh, solar storm and EMP impact, uh, let's just talk a little bit about uh, the current, uh, the summer issue of Paranoia Magazine. What's going on? Uh, what do you have on, in, in store uh, this summer in Paranoia? Well, it's uh, doing quite well, actually. It seems as if each issue gets better and better, and we get a lot of good uh, reviews which is great for subscriptions. Unfortunately, my, my distribution um, is a little down because the distributor I was using just unfortunately isn't working out. So I'm just pretty much relying on subscriptions now, and people can go to paranoiamagazine.com to subscribe. But in this summer issue, we have uh, some very intriguing articles, um, one called The Return of the Phoenix, The Four Sons of an Intruder Planet, by Jason M. Breschers. Um, and then we have Adam Rightly, who's a very prolific writer for Paranoia, and I think you know him quite well. And Adam's he wrote good friend. Uh, Great guy. a very interesting article called uh, The Dead Comedian Conspiracy. And so he kind of really gets into, you know, looking at some of the premature demises and suspicious circumstances of some of the deaths of uh, various comedians um, like um, Lenny Bruce and uh, Freddie Prinz, you know, just to name a few. And then um, we also have uh, an article called A History of Silence, and it's a very um, chilling, riveting article about child trafficking in the United States. And it was written by a uh, MK Ultra survivor by the name of David Scherter from Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, other articles, uh, the DOD's Paranormal Files on Transhumanism and Human Singularity by H. Michael Sweeney. And Victor Thorne wrote an article. Um, it's fantastic. He did an excellent job in, in doing a lot of very detailed research and it's called uh, the Boston Marathon bombing. Wag the dog meets a strategy of tension. And another really interesting article is called the Magian Threat. This is part two, and it's the ascendancy of the dark adepts or adepts. And essentially, what uh, Jack Horner does—that's his pseudonym—he kind of goes in and sort of demystifies what we know as the Illuminati and talks about the Magi's role in, in uh, manipulating history and uh, changes throughout. And then... Well, you cover a lot of ground. Oh, yeah, <laughs> very much so. And then Olaf Phillips, who's uh, also involved in uh, marketing for Paranoia, wrote an article on uh, Hitler's occult warrior historians. So if you... If the listeners have seen uh, Indiana Jones and re remembers those uh, Nazis out in uh, in the Middle East trying to find like the uh, Spear of Destiny and the uh, Ark of the Covenant, um, those were actual um, 
scientists and historians and archaeologists that were, you know, trying to find these things. And so it's yeah, a, a very absolutely there's a grain of truth to, the, to those uh, Indiana Jones uh, yeah. stories. Sorry, Ron, I, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt there. So that's, that's quite a, uh, an issue. That's jam-packed, my friend. Listen, we'll, uh, we'll preview the fall uh, issue of Paranoia Magazine in just a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to get on now to, of course, the, uh, the topic du jour, which a uh, great deal of buzz, uh, and understandably so, about the possibility of a solar storm headed our way. Uh, we are in this peak uh, of this 11-year cycle with the sun, and, and scientists are very concerned about a coronal mass ejection that could rival the Carrington event, as I said, of the 1850s. What are you, what are you hearing about this? Well, I mean, I, you know, before you told me about what you'd like to discuss on the show, I, I did a little bit of research, and I looked at some information from NASA and, uh, you know, some other websites, and it appears that... Uh, we're going to have some sort of event. We're, we're definitely overdue for it. Um, from my understanding, these uh, significant solar storms occur about every 100 years, and the, the last uh, really big one was in 1859, like you had mentioned earlier, the, the Carrington effect. Um, so if this does occur, then, of course, it's going to have a devastating impact upon the uh, infrastructure you know, knocking out power plants and transformers, cell towers, I mean, even satellites. So, yeah, it's a, a pretty scary possibility indeed. I mean, let's uh, speculate a little, uh, a little bit here, not to raise uh, alarms. Oh, well, we need to raise alarms. I mean, this is a real possibility, but I mean, not to frighten unnecessarily. But, you know, as the old saying goes, uh, forewarned, forearmed. What do you think, uh, you know, would be going on in major metropolitan areas if all of a sudden, you know, the lights went out for an extended period of time? Right. Well, before I, I get into that, I just wanted to mention a book. Um, it's uh, a fiction by William Fortune, I believe is his name, and it's called One Second After. It was written in 2009. Again, although the book's a, a fiction, it, it's based on reality in the sense that he put together um, sort of a catastrophe model, which was actually created by U.S. government agencies. And so the premise of the book has to do what if there was um, an EMP or electromagnetic pulse. And in his book, he talks about uh, a nuclear explosion high in the atmosphere which created this uh, EMP, and that's another way of that's another way of creating an EMP other, other than a solar storm. Listen, Ron, uh, sorry to jump in. Got to take a time out. We'll come back. The music is percolating up. When we return, we'll get into solar storms. Ron Patton from Paranoia Magazine, as the conspiracy show comes to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. Welcome back. Ron Patton is with us from Paranoia Magazine as we broadcast live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. We're talking about an impending solar storm which could unleash a massive electromagnetic pulse. Now, Ron, before the break, you were mentioning that back in, I think it was 2009, William Fortune, uh, Forstchen, rather, wrote a, a New York Times best-selling uh, book called One Second After, 
which uh, dealt with this very subject, although in this case the EMP, uh, I believe, was uh, the result of uh, a nuclear blast as opposed to a solar storm, was it not? Yes, that's correct, but essentially the effect would be the same in terms of, you know, knocking out the, uh, the electrical infrastructure. And, uh, I mean, this is something that, that I've heard people in the National Security Agency and others, uh, the Pentagon, commenting on as well, the, the risk of, uh, of an EMP attack from some rogue uh, state or rogue terror group that got their hands on a nuke, whether or not they, they had sufficient, uh, you know, uh, they, in other words, they wouldn't need a long-range ballistic missile to deliver it to the shores of the United States. They'd simply have to, uh, I guess, Detonated somewhere over the uh, over the continental United States, and it would unleash again this unimaginable uh, uh, event in which you know again lights would go out, uh, uh, power grids offline, communications would cease. Uh, you'd have planes falling out of the sky because of you know satellite communication and navigation systems would go down. So again, let's let's imagine that this solar storm happens and, and a coronal mass ejection causes an EMP. What's it going to be like in places like New York City, Washington D.C.? Paint me a picture. Well, you know, again, getting back to the book, he talks about what's referred to as die-off sequences, and again, this is all based on actual projections by. Uh, the Department of Defense and other government agencies. And so let's say the first word or the first week you have uh, an onset of disease, you know, due to tainted food and polluted drinking water, and you have a certain uh, percentage of people getting sick, some of the elderly uh, that start dying. And then in 30 days you have, let's say, people that are cardiac patients or people that are uh, drug-dependent uh, diabetics, they start dying off, and then, of course, uh, as time progresses, it just sort of uh, it's becomes exponential, and the projection within the book was a 90% die-off rate, primarily in uh, major metropolitan areas. Now, places like in the Midwest, where there is um, a little bit more sustainable um, climate for growing food, um, that was only about 50%. But it just seems like you're doomed for the most part if you reside in a, in a major metropolitan area. And if this indeed does occur, um, it's a scary um, possibility indeed. And uh, then you have to think about how does one really prepare for this if you do live in the city? Um so I think that's really a, an important question to ask. Any plans uh, to to cover this in an upcoming uh, issue of Paranoia? Um, now that I'm looking, delving into it a little bit more, I think uh, we should. Um, I'm also going to do probably an article uh, about the Fukushima fallout. A lot of people have uh, forgotten about that. And, that's right. uh, but that's still affecting us uh, quite profoundly. And there's so much cover-up regarding the uh, radiation exposure that's occurring all over the planet. I, I, uh, well, just to, to 
diverge slightly here from a moment on Fukushima. I, I happened to see a press conference online with a spokesperson at the plant and uh, was quite candid and said, you know, we cannot contain this. The situation is dire. And basically threw his hands up at this point that I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> right. And, you know, the interesting thing is um, there's a lot of people that have uh, Geiger counters, um, you know, internationally, they're, they're sort of uh, monitoring and, and testing for radiation levels. And uh, it just seems to get higher and higher in, in uh, different remote places. So um, the guy is correct who, you know, said that at the press conference because it's still affecting us in a very detrimental and profound way. Uh, back to solar storms, and just a reminder, Ron Patton, publisher of Paranoia Magazine, joining us here on The Conspiracy Show. You mentioned this, this die-off sequence, which is quite uh, morose, obviously, to even contemplate. Uh, but one could imagine that if the United States, uh, for example, was left that vulnerable after such an attack... Uh, you, you know, n- nuclear nuclear missile silos, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, would also go down. They'd be offline. Uh, they'd be wide open to an attack. So anyone who's left would be ripe for total invasion, I would think. Um, yeah, it would appear that way. Um, and I really don't know if there are any have been any type of contingency plans for something like that. But my gut feeling is that um, there are probably some underground facilities that um, are able to sort of uh, survive, you know, um, this type of uh, EMP attack. Um, But for how long, you know, that's the thing, because apparently this, uh, this could be for not just a few days or a few weeks, but the uh, devastating consequences could last for several months to several years. What are you hearing uh, in terms of? Uh, well, well, let me let me put it this way: we we hear about you know these secret uh, FEMA camps and and plans to instigate or or to implement rather uh, uh, martial law. And people are wondering, well, what are they preparing for? We had reports FEMA buying up um, tons of ammunition, and uh, uh, there were also reports of uh, various U.S. government agencies stockpiling uh, caskets, uh, which led people to wonder, again, what are they preparing for? Is this the event, do you think, Ron, that they might be preparing for, this massive coronal ejection? Um. Honestly, I don't know, <laughs> but it would appear to be, you know, something that's scientifically based. I don't think there's much debate over whether or not it's going to happen. Um, it's just a matter of when and, you know, how devastating is it going to be? Um, you know, some people are making the assumption that the, uh, the electromagnetic pulse will do us in. No, that doesn't, that's not going to affect us. What's really going to be devastating is, again, the decline of the infrastructure, especially in uh, some of the bigger cities. And, 
you know, it's going to be sort of like a domino effect or a cascade of failures, so to speak, where one thing's going to affect the other and um, there's going to be looting and rioting and, you know, there's just going to be total chaos. And so it would be really hard for me to sort of fathom how martial law would really come into play with this amount of devastation. I just, I can't really, I can't wrap my head around it because it would be so ominous, I guess. Um, If there were other events that occurred with uh, less amount of uh, devastation, then I I can see how martial law would be implemented. But, uh, boy, something like this, um, it's, it's crazy. And, again, you got to look at it not just from, you know, North America, but how is this going to affect the rest of the planet? So I guess that's, that's true. We, we tend to focus on North America, and, and the Lloyds of London article I mentioned off the top, again, they were focusing on uh, the United States. My understanding is that uh, Great Britain and other jurisdictions, I'm not sure which other jurisdictions, but have taken certain measures to shield their electronics, their power grids from such an event. But I guess, in this case, the United States is lagging behind in that regard. They haven't taken the necessary precautions. Hmm. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, that's just going to melt down, of course, the, the fiber optics or anything that's sort of vulnerable to this type of uh, electromagnetic pulse. But... Uh, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what transpires. Apparently, um, these storms are could last until about 2020, from what I've read. Have you heard anything about that? Uh, I, I don't have a handle on the uh, the date. I just my understanding is that we are sort of in the peak of this solar cycle, in which we get a lot of this tumultuous activity. Um, right. the, the interesting thing is, you know, we, we talked about the Carrington event, which took place, as you say, in 1859. That was the largest solar yeah. storm on record. But it, it went, I won't say largely unnoticed, but the impact wasn't felt because, again, we're talking 1859 before the advent of power grids and, and uh, electronics and computers. But even then, uh, telegraph reporters were reporting that sparks were coming off their devices. And um, the other interesting thing is the effect that this has on the northern lights. It intensifies the northern and southern lights, this electromagnetic activity. And the northern lights were so bright uh, that people were reporting they were able to read their newspaper in the dark because of the northern lights. So I guess the point here is, you know, imagine if we get something that large, a a solar storm that large in 2013, again, given our dependency on the electrical electrical grids and and, uh, electronics and so forth, how devastating this could be. Do you you personally uh, have sort of a survival plan? (laughs) Well, after going through some of this... uh on the internet doing some research today, uh, that really came to mind. Um, and I think it's uh, something that might be feasible for some people, but I think in general, just because there's so much lethargy and apathy and maybe even fear, that uh, I don't think most people would be 
um, really serious about putting together a, a you know viable contingency plan. But I think I'm going to definitely look more into it now. I know there's several people that put together like you know 72 hour survival kits, but like something like this, I mean you have to take uh, definitely immediate action. And you know I'm not really sure about how much warning we have too when these solar flares actually occur, and you know to the degree of if they're really going to create a significant electromagnetic pulse. Um, have you heard anything about that in terms of the, the warning time that's given? Well, we I guess we we are being warned now, but um, you know we we don't really hear about how close you know this, the impact was until after the event. Uh, for example, the the last one that we were being told about that occurred at the end of July, I believe it was July 30th. I think it was a couple of days later. When we were when we were told, well, that was close. <laughs> so obviously, we we don't know, uh, you know, with any certainty when it's going to hit. It seems to be always right. after the fact that we're told how close it was. But we are being warned now. We're in again. We're in the peak of this solar cycle, this 11-year solar cycle. So this is our warning, I guess. Right. And you know, one, one can hypothesize, you know, quite a bit regarding this, but. Uh, I guess my question, too, would be, um, you know, what about uh, vehicles, you know, your, your conventional motor vehicle? Now, is that going to be impacted? Is the carburetor going to be fried, you know, from this electromagnetic uh, pulse? Um, so if you were wanting to get out, you know, let's say up to the hills or, or somewhere more rural, would you even be able to drive well, I, I was just looking at a, a quick summary of uh, William Fortschen's uh, book that you mentioned a second after, and there is a there is a section in there talking about all of these uh, uh, cars, you know, trying to make this desperate escape, and right. they just come to a complete stop because, you know, most cars have uh, today have major electro electronic components fuel injection right. and all this are, are electronically uh, controlled. So I don't think there's any escape. Uh, if you're in a vehicle, when the EMP strikes, you're going to be coming to a complete standstill. It'll be, it'll be traffic grid like we've never experienced before. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you look at all the, the different possibilities and, uh, you know, scenarios, and it, it just seems like so overwhelming, but I guess, uh, you know, you do what you can do and maybe try to create some sort of uh, semblance of uh, community and harmony within the area that you live and to, you know, be able to, to prepare just the best you can. Um, Ron Patton from yeah, Illinois Magazine joins us with time, a quick, have, back and you know, a quick preview uh, a lot of civil unrest issue of paranoia when the conspiracy show returns here from Kalamata, Greece, the Elite City Resort. Live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece, The Conspiracy Show, Ron Patton, publisher of Paranoia Magazine, joins us, and uh, Tim Spreen back in studio, my technical producer. Thanks for rolling those uh, phone numbers. would love to take some calls, ask people how serious they're taking this threat that uh, we could be facing an impending massive solar storm that could lock, knock, rather, 
uh, power grids offline uh, across North America primarily. Other countries, as I say, Great Britain, apparently have taken uh, some precautions. They've uh, shielded their their power grids, their electronic systems. Uh, I'm sure certain uh, organizations in the United States, Canada, have, have taken measures as well. But by and large, the major power grid systems that deliver electricity to hospitals and homes and factories and uh, so forth across North America are vulnerable to such a solar storm and the ensuing electromagnetic pulse, which I guess would, prim- would uh, essentially fry the, uh, fry the wires. Uh, and again, this disruption in, in power would not just be for 72 hours or a couple of weeks. I've, I've read articles in which NASA scientists have been quoted as saying these power grids could be offline for one to two years before they're uh, repaired and back online. Imagine the mayhem, the havoc that would ensue if we were left alone in the dark for one or two years, my word. Ron Patton is uh, with us, and we're speculating on um, you know, what might happen, what might occur. It's a dire scenario, uh, to be sure. Ron, do you, um, do you believe, I-, I asked you this before, but I just wanted to delve into this a little bit more. Do you believe that the United States government, for example, uh, is aware of this, I mean, obviously they're aware of it, but they're they're more concerned that they're letting on, and they're not necessarily giving us all the information uh, that we need. They don't obviously want to cause panic. Um, it seems like uh, the United States has a history of doing that, and and in so doing so, they also create a certain amount of fear, um, but. At the same time, again, looking at some of the uh, scientific evidence, it, it appears that this is something that may actually take place. Um, and, of course, yeah, they could be withholding a certain amount of information because they don't want to create uh, a lot of panic. And uh, um, But, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens within the next uh, several months. I'm... Um, it seems to be just a matter of uh, a matter of time. Uh, I was saying that we have narrowly avoided one such EMP catastrophe about uh, two weeks ago. Here's a quote from Henry Cooper, who led strategic arms negotiations with the Soviet Union under President Reagan, and who now heads High Frontier, a group pushing for missile defense. There had been a, mere, a near miss about two weeks ago, a Carrington-class mass ejection crossed the orbit of the Earth and basically just missed us. The world escaped an EMP catastrophe. Um, basically, this is a Russian roulette thing, said uh, Peter Vincent Pry, who served on the Congressional EMP Threat Commission from 2001 to 2008. He was referring to the 1859 EMP named after astronomer Richard Carrington that melted telegraph lines in Europe and North America. A Russian roulette thing, uh, and as I say, they've they've they actually had a EMP threat commission from 2001 to 2008. That shows you they're taking this very seriously, and um, apparently we just avoided a catastrophe two weeks ago. So 
yeah, let's see what's in store for the next, uh, over the next three or four months, which I guess is sort of the next window that these scientists are, are, are looking for. But it's interesting, you know, you don't, see, you don't hear a lot of this in the news. It's, it's as if the major news outlets are sort of in lockstep with the, um, with the powers that be. They don't want to cause panic, so they're just not talking about it. Right. It, it's uh, curiously suspicious as to why they're not really um, putting out a lot of information. And, of course, most of this information you're finding on the, uh, the Internet or through uh, alternative media. And um, so, yeah, we'll just we'll have to see. Um, you know, and it, ju- it amazes me, though, when you look at the history of this planet, and how we've survived so much, and it, it just seems like we've been able to weather asteroids and uh, you know other planets bombarding into us. So hopefully, there's a there's a uh, universal force that has a hedge of protection over us because to me, that's the only thing that can really um, be able to protect us. Uh, I'm always, I'm really amazed that, you know, the Earth hasn't been significantly destroyed or devastated by now. I'm wondering, you know, thinking back, of course, to um, all of the uh, talk about the Mayan calendar in 2012, and whether this is what the Mayans were, were prophesizing, the, uh, a major catastrophic event that wouldn't necessarily destroy the planet, uh, but would certainly, you know, push the reset button. Maybe we can touch on that when we come back uh, on the other side. Ron Patton is with us from Paranoia Magazine. We're discussing solar storms. We'll take your calls as well. Are you taking this threat seriously? If so, what precautions are you taking? Uh, The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back. Our final show from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece heading up to Athens later today and uh, departing for Toronto later in the week. Ron Patton stays with us, the publisher of Paranoia Magazine. We'll get a uh, preview of the upcoming fall issue and uh, let you know again how you can subscribe to Paranoia Magazine, a terrific publication and covers such a wide um, uh, scope of of topics. And uh, right now we're talking about the... um, possibility of an impending solar storm, a massive solar storm. Just to give you an indication, back in 1989, there was a a rather substantial coronal ejection, and it knocked out Quebec's electrical uh, transmission system, uh, Quebec, Canada. Uh, I'm not sure how long that was off. I don't recall at the time, but, um, you know, it was province-wide. I certainly remember that. And... Again, when we're talking solar storms, we're talking about electromagnetic pulses. And North Korea is reportedly testing a device to attack the U.S. with just such a device, an EMP attack. All right, um, Ron, I was mentioning uh, 2012, uh, and whether or not that prophecy had anything to do with the possibility of some sort of a coronal mass ejection, because I've heard people like theoretical physicist Michio Kaku speculating that such an EMP attack could knock civilization back 150 years. Right. So you're, you're referring to the Mayan calendar, 
And uh, from my understanding, the end of that calendar was supposed to be, what, in December of 2012. However, they said the uh, a lot of the real devastating, uh, if there were to be any sort of devastation upon the planet, that would be in 2013. So it seems as if that that might, in fact, kind of fall into that that scope or into that uh, prediction within the Mayan calendar. So, you know, we'll see. Again, this is all speculative, but uh, um, there have been a lot of uh, very interesting insights through different sources. And, uh, yeah, we'll see. All right, let's uh, say hello to Mark, joining us on the line from Alberta, Wild Rose Country. Hello, Mark. Welcome to The Conspiracy hey, Show. Hey, Richard uh, Tikani. How are you? Wonderful. Kala, kala. Excellent. Um, well, I'm, I've done a lot of research uh, uh, regarding the CME and the, uh, the coronal mass ejections. Um, the, the nuclear, uh, it's, it's going to be basically an air burst over a city, so it's a very small area that's affected. It's the CME that people need to be paranoid about. Um, any modern vehicle uh, that has a, a lot of computer chips in it and stuff like that are just basically going to be fried. Um, exactly, yes. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned that it's only going to be sort of local areas yeah. uh, affected because the burst would be over cities. Yeah, that's um, right. yeah you're, only, you're only talking about maybe five, ten square kilometers that would be affected. Um, well, here's the thing. Uh, the actual land area that might be affected by an EMP uh, may be relatively small. But when you look at the interconnectedness of, of power grid systems, uh, for example, you know, a transmission or a, trans, uh, a, trans, a generating system goes out in, in Quebec and it affects, it can affect people down in, you know, New York State. So that, oh, that interconnectedness of the power grid system that would have me concerned. Yeah, but a, but a, a Carrington event happening in today's day and age would be, uh, it would knock us back into the Stone Age. Um, they they say that you know we're six meals away from total chaos. Um, basically, so we're what? We're how far away from total chaos? Six six square meals away from total chaos. Six square, square yes, yeah, six square meals exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's that's how <laughs> that's how poorly prepared we are. I mean, Mark in Alberta, uh, your your province has a uh, a wonderful reputation that I admire for self reliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you taken? Um, precautions? Are you a, a bit of a survivalist? Oh, absolutely. I'm a fifth-generation Albertan, um, and so all my family was originally farmers. I have uh, a large stockpile. As they say, the, the, the three Bs, beans, bullets, and Band-Aids. <laughs> I had not heard that. The no. three Bs, beans, bullets, and Band-Aids. That's right, yeah. And uh, uh, do you have a, a how many months supply uh, of food and water do you, do you have? Um, well, I, maybe at the house here uh, in the city, maybe about a month. Um, but I wouldn't let it go that long. We would head to the family ranch um, up near the mountains. Um, much more sustainable, um, better security. Um, honestly, if, if if people do research on this type of thing. Um, you're, the whole bugging out thing, you know, grab your backpack and go live in the bush isn't going to work. The uh, staying in your house, um, thinking that your neighbors will be your friends for, you know, a year isn't going to work. People will do anything to feed their kids. Uh, people will do anything to stay warm. 
Um, everything from if you've got a wood-burning fireplace, you know, people are going to see that. Uh, they're going to come looking for heat in your home. You name it. So you're you're opting for the uh, get out of dodge. Oh, absolutely. Scenario. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I live in uh, I live in a, in a in a fair sized city. You know, maybe a couple hundred thousand people, but uh, um, it's it, it would be absolute chaos. Um, if you look at the at the floods in High River, Alberta, um, it's still absolutely uh, a gong show there. People, if if it wasn't for the Red Cross, bless their hearts. Uh, stuff like that, uh, people would be would be dying, and that's just from a flood. Yes, yes. It's you know it's true. They say that oftentimes people are at their best when things are at their worst, but that's over a fairly short period of time, maybe a couple of weeks, a couple of months at best. But what happens if the lights go out for several years? It's and scary. we'll see. It's scary. Mark in Alberta, great to hear from you. Thanks for checking in. Thank you, Richard. Enjoy the rest of your vacation. Will do. All right, back to Ron Patton, publisher of Paranoia Magazine. Ron, while time allows, let's uh, take a quick look at the f- upcoming fall uh, issue of Paranoia. Okay, I just uh, wanted to just briefly mention that we had the uh, Paranoia Con July 20th and 21st here in San Diego, California. And uh, if people want to take a look at uh, some of the speakers, and uh, I believe there's some video footage of that. They can uh, go to paranoiacon.com. We had uh, Adam Go-Rightly, Ralph Epperson, Olaf Phillips, Dean Haglin from the X-Files there, just to name a few speakers. So, uh, yeah, go check that out. But uh, for our upcoming fall 2013 issue, uh, some of the articles that we have featured are going to be the Secret War on Human Consciousness. Is the Dalai Lama a CIA asset? Of course, that's going to Ooh, be that's interesting. very <laughs> controversial. Um, and then we do have a, uh, an article dealing with the JFK, JFK assassination called Daily Plaza and the Dream by Mac White, who's a, uh, a comic illustrator and a radio show host um, who... Was uh, who grew up in Texas, and so it's sort of about his uh, take on it when he was a, a youngster. And then we have uh, an article by uh, Marie D. Jones and Larry Flaxman, uh, both of whom I believe have been on your show, and it's yeah. called Good Vibrations, The Healing Effects of Resonance. And oh, yeah. uh, another um, article is The Big Data Street Fight, Turf Wars in the Shadows. And uh, that has to do sort of about, uh, it deals more with uh, surveillance issues and the uh, Eric Snowden affair. Um, So it's a a very timely article. And then we have uh, an article dealing with Hollywood mind control. And that's by uh, Jamie Hanshaw. So those are just a few articles for the uh, upcoming issue. And uh, again, if people want to, check out the website, and then go to www.paranoiamagazine.com. Well, uh, kudos to you, Ron, for um, uh, resurrecting paranoia from its uh, dormancy. Uh, you know, the timing couldn't have been better. I, I, I can't think of uh, a time when we needed a publication like Paranoia Magazine more than we do right now. I mean, you've, you've just sort of come, brought the paper, or pr- brought the magazine back online 
when when we need it most? Uh, what, what kind of response are you getting from from people? Um, we're getting really good response, and uh, subscriptions are are going up. It seems like with uh, each issue that we put out, and we are uh, quarterly, so we come out four times a year. But uh, I'm never um, short of having enough articles or writers wanting to uh, submit their uh, pieces to uh, paranoia. And so, you know, we also try to uh, disseminate the information through multimedia. So not only do we have hard copy, but we're also going to be putting uh, paranoia online as well for people to check out. And uh, we're going to be also doing uh, a radio show here in the not-too-distant future called, appropriately, Paranoia Radio. And uh, Adam Go-Rightly will be the host. Oh, wonderful. Um, hey, so that's great news. trying to go at different levels. Well, you picked a good man with Adam Go-Rightly. Uh, he's a terrific guy and very knowledgeable. Uh, you mentioned uh, in the upcoming issue uh, you're going to touch on the, um, the, the the Snowden affair, and, and uh, since that broke, I mean, you and I have not chatted uh, for several months. Uh, I'd like to get your your, your take on, on that situation just in the couple of minutes that remain. Right. Well, um, I, I remember when it first came out, and for the most part, I, I really thought it was more of a diversion or a distraction because... From, you know, what I read and what he was, uh, you know, putting out, you know, I just felt that, well, what's, that there's nothing new under the sun, really, uh, what he was exposing. And, uh, you know, Echelon and, and the uh, type of surveillance that have been going on for the past 30 or 40 years, um, again, this has been happening for quite a long time, and I think when you start having so much um, press coverage on a subject like this, I think there's really something else that's going on. And uh, so that's pretty much my, my take on it. Um, but it also seems like within the NSA and the CIA, there might be some sort of uh, um, confrontation going on in, in terms of uh, surveillance. So. I, it's almost like a smoke and mirror game to me. In other words, these alphabet intel groups, the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, uh, they're, I guess, behind the scenes in some sort of a turf battle. Uh, and so perhaps the CIA was using Snowden uh, as, a, as, a, as a tool to, to embarrass the, the National Security Agency. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, that's what I have concluded <laughs> for the most part. And again, when you have so much press coverage, and then you also have a lot of uh, conflicting reports, which we have seen um, so much throughout the, the years, especially when we have these like traumatic events like uh, the Aurora shootings or uh, Sandy Hook shootings or the Boston Marathon bombing. You know that there's some sort of social engineering going on, and so I think, uh, for the most part, uh, the whole Snowden affair is sort of along those lines as well. All right, well, we'll look forward to reading about that in the fall issue of Paranoia Magazine. Ron Patton, publisher, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been my pleasure, Richard. Thank you for having me. All right, Ron Patton.
Hey, the website, your portal to the conspiracy show, www.richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth wherever it leads. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece, actually. Our final broadcast from Kalamata. We went up to Athens and then eventually head home to Toronto. We're going to talk about BEKs here in just a moment. Are you familiar with BEKs? Yet another acronym, and this one from the field of the paranormal, Bied Kids or Black-Eyed Children. Uh, these are cases that involve sorts of children who approach individuals and ask them from rand- for random favors or help, and uh, these kids are reported to look normal in appearance except for their solid black eyes. Uh, just solid black eyes. And the mannerisms that these children show upon uh, encounter are not like you would uh, observe in children in that particular age group. Uh, usually witnesses say these children appear to be in a trance-like state. Uh, they can be described as lethargic, catatonic, yet forceful, even demanding and insistent in getting you to do what they want. But again, it's these black eyes uh, that are so disconcerting. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by our paranormal expert who joins us the second Sunday of every month. We'll be here to chat about that. Just a quick uh, programming note. At the bottom of the hour, we're going to throw the phone lines wide open. The last half hour of the program, you, me, and the telephone. Give me a call and uh, ask me anything or talk about anything, as long, of course, as it uh, uh, has to do with things conspiratorial, paranormal, supernatural. You know the drill. You've been listening to the program for long enough now. Uh, That being said, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert on the paranormal. She's the author of 45-plus books and hundreds of articles on a wide range of topics. She conducts original field investigations of haunted and mysterious sites and researches entity contact experiences and spirit communications. She is a consulting editor of Fate magazine. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Doing well, Richard. I have to tell you, I received an email recently, since the last time you were on, uh, from a woman, and she asked me uh, whether I had ever uh, done a show on something called black-eyed people, or specifically black-eyed children. And uh, I said, not that I could recall. However, that jogged my memory, and I remembered receiving an email uh, from a woman, and I actually went back in my files and I found it. And it was a, uh, a woman in the States who was in a, uh, at that time they had Kmart. I don't know if the Kmart is still around, but she was in a Kmart parking lot. And she was suddenly uh, surrounded by a group of small children, like maybe a half dozen children. And they were, many of them were sort of, uh, you know, dressed in, in uh, hoodies or hooded sweatshirts. And uh, they all sort of, were looking down at their feet, kind of shy. But one of them sort of assumed the role of, of spokesperson and uh, was rather precocious, very eloquent for, let's say, a 10 or an 11-year-old, almost speaking like an adult. And they wanted, they seemed to be asking this woman if they could get a ride somewhere. And of course, there were half a dozen of them. There was no way she could fit them all into her car. But then, as she looked into this child's face... She was horrified because this child had black eyes. I'm not just talking about black pupils, but solid black. No whites in the eyes, just solid black. 
And then she noticed the skin color was somewhat sort of white and, and, and bluish, uh, which again was, you know, very unsettling. And when the child noticed that the woman obviously noticed the, the features, the child became very angry, very animated, very aggressive and started ordering this woman around saying, you are going to let us in your car and you're going to drive us here. And uh, she almost felt like she was under some sort of mind control. Somehow she managed to break out of the spell. She got in her car, locked the doors and tore off. And uh, she wrote me this email. So, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, what can you tell us about black-eyed people or black-eyed children? What's going on here? They're one of the newest wrinkles in a very old and ancient phenomenon. And uh, they've been documented since about the 1980s. At first they were called the black-eyed kids, and then uh, it became the black-eyed children. Now, really, we need to call them black-eyed people because accounts are coming in about black-eyed adults as well acting in the same manner as uh, the woman described in her encounter. I consider them to be a mutation of um, phenomena that have plagued human beings from the beginning of time. And it's taken different forms throughout history uh, as uh, fairies, as the devil, as men in black, as shadow people. Uh, I believe myself that the black-eyed children and adults are a form taken by the jinn. And I did write about them in the Jinn Connection, uh, my new book. Uh, some people think that they're demons and they act in demonic ways. But um, it, it seems that whatever it is, if it's the jinn or some other sort of personification of malevolence, whatever it is, it morphs and shapeshifts throughout history uh, to appear in ways that uh, are very consistent in terms of, of how it attacks and upsets people. But um, whether it's um, a mysterious creature or a devil-looking thing or black-eyed children, uh, it all points back to the same origin. And I do believe the jinn are involved in this. That's interesting. Uh, you, you and I have talked extensively about jinn, these interdimensional uh, entities that I guess predate humankind and are somewhat resentful that we were sort of squeezing them out of their turf. The interesting thing I found is with these black-eyed children, because I went on and did, uh, on, online and did a little research as well, and that is the fact that they seem to require people's permission Rather than just, you know, barging into someone's house, they'll appear on the doorstep, they'll knock, they'll first ask politely, can we come in, can we come in? But if you don't invite them into your home, or as this woman who emailed me, if you don't allow them to come into your car, they can't. And to me, that's sort of reminiscent of something that we talked about last month, which is the, at least the Hollywood depiction of the vampire. You have to invite them in. What's going on there? Well, actually, that sort of premise exists with all kinds of negative entity encounters. It's very prominent in the vampire lore, of course. Uh, we also find it uh, in encounters with demons, that uh, demons, in order for them to wreak the most havoc, uh, we have to somehow invite them into our lives. Now, when they, they approach people, uh, 
it's it's often when people are very distracted. Uh, there are a lot of parking lot encounters. People are putting things in their car, getting out of their car, getting into their car, and all of a sudden there are these kids, and it's seldom one. It's usually two or more, uh, but not like a huge group of them. And so the average person is just like, uh, oh, there's some kids here and maybe they need some help. So a lot of times they look disheveled, kind of ragged. And they don't really notice right off the bat that something is very wrong with these children. Um, it's making the eye contact that uh, brings the problems. And when they lock eyes with these entities, they see that they are totally black and they uh, they're often filled with terror and dread. Uh, meanwhile, these entities, uh, these children are insisting that they want something. They want to get into the car. Sometimes they'll come and bang on uh, uh, store doors uh, after they've closed. They want in because they want something. They come to the doors of residences. Uh, and sometimes they do want to go somewhere they want something from you but what they want is that link to you and they get it through the eye contact um, and once that's made it seems like they have um, a hook into a person they the person will often feel very wasted uh, they might have health problems they might have nightmares for weeks on end where these these black-eyed beings invade their dreams. So these characteristics are shared by other kinds of invasive entities. Uh, it's just a different form for something that really wants to harm us. Is it possible, let me just play skeptic here for a moment, uh, you know, and when, when we're talking about the appearance of the eye and the fact that there is no differentiation between the, the pupil uh, and what is normally the white part of the human eye, which I believe is called the sclera or the sclera. So in other words, there is no white part. It's, in, it's just all black. Now, in, in certain animals, you know, you'll have the pupil and then you'll have maybe uh, the sclera will be, you know, like in a dog or a, or a horse, for example, the sclera will be maybe a light brown. So there's a differentiation. Mm -hmm. But with these black-eyed children, I mean, the, the pupil, the, the retina, the iris, it's all, the, the sclera, it's all black. Is it possible that there's some sort of a, an eye disease, I don't know, a vitamin deficiency that might explain this? I don't know of any. And... Um, this is such a common characteristic. Um, these cases are scattered all over the place where, you know, people like myself and David Weatherly, who uh, investigated this phenomenon, a researcher that I know in Arizona and wrote a book on the subject, uh, a lot of us are getting reports from all over the world. And so uh, I, I don't know of any eye disease. I think it is more a supernatural phenomenon. Now, the, the question is, like, well, if these are entities who are trying to uh, gain, you know, get a hook into us and gain something from us, why would they give themselves away with black eyes? Uh, and we run into these contradictions in the paranormal all the time. Uh, and... For example, with shadow people, black-eyed children can be very related to shadow people, which are a form of jinn. And these are uh, dark entities who come into the bedroom. They look like silhouettes, usually tall men, and they always seem to be dressed in um, 
like a trench coat or a cape, and, and they're often wearing a hat. Why would they need to wear a hat? And sometimes the hat is, is kind of silly looking, but uh, the, the figures strike terror into the heart of people, and it may very well be, I've speculated with the shadow people, that maybe they're wearing a hat because the entity that's shape-shifting into that form can't get the head right, and so they cover something with the hat. Uh, and it may very well be with the black-eyed children that uh, they they can't alter the eyes or they deliberately have the black eyes because they know that's going to absolutely strike terror. And when we have that automatic fear reaction, there's an adrenaline rush. And in a, a millisecond, we could be, like, very open to them to... Um, to grab hold of us in some sort of energetic way. Now, we find the same phenomenon with the abducting ETs. Uh, the abductees are mesmerized by compelling eyes. The jinn, when they want to uh, put someone under their spell or they want to seduce someone or they, they want to get something from someone, they also have mesmerizing eyes. So it's a shared phenomenon with predatory entities. All right, let's take a time out. We'll come back and continue to talk about the phenomenon known as black-eyed children. Actually, there are black-eyed adults, and we'll touch on that when we come back as well. Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from Kalamata in southern Greece. Stay with us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us the second Sunday of every month, and tonight we're talking about black-eyed children. I've received some emails uh, about this phenomenon, people uh, being approached by uh, children, or, or let's say uh, adolescents, uh, and uh, being totally uh, shocked and horrified when they discover that these children have solid black eyes. No whites in the eyes at all, just solid black. And uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is suggesting that there may be a connection uh, between these black-eyed children and, and, and an entity that she has documented uh, uh, quite a bit, known as the jinn, uh, which are, of course, known as genies here in, in the Western culture. Uh, there are, though, cases of adults. Uh, people have seen adults with black eyes, and I've heard black-eyed uh, adults uh, mentioned in connection with the notorious men in black, those people that will show up after someone has, you know, seen a UFO and perhaps thought about going public with it. Uh, what can you tell us about these uh, these encounters with adults with black eyes? Well, they're very similar to the uh, child uh, encounters where they want something. They want something from you. And uh, the cases with the men in black, um, they started out being documented in the UFO uh, literature, where people who had had marked experiences, sightings, or contact uh, suddenly had these these entities in, in their life. They were visited by uh, these weird-looking men with dark eyes, um, black clothing, and strange behavior. They seemed to know a lot about them and warned them not to talk about it. Um, all of these things are interconnected in very strange ways because the men in black have connections to uh, the shadow people who have connections to jinn, and the jinn have connections to abducting ETs, and the ETs and the jinn have connections to fairies, and fairies have connections to the devil. 
so um, are we dealing with like an Oz behind the curtain here? Um, and who is that Oz? Um, many people think that it's probably the jinn. Other people say it's demons. John Keel called it the, the trickster of the universe, who uh, some cosmic force which is always messing around with us at our expense, and uh, we never seem to know why. So the adult encounters uh, can be equally terrifying as the child encounters. Now, one thing also that seems to harm people the most is touch. And if you lock eyes with these entities, uh, you're in for a hard ride. And if one of them is able to touch you in any way, it seems to impart something into your well-being and your health and your mind that also has a very deteriorating effect. But the black-eyed adults, are not they don't seem to be as common yet as the children, and maybe that's just because uh, we just haven't got enough reports of them in yet. But if one goes online, uh, this is a very popular topic, and there are, I dare say, thousands of, of these accounts uh, just online. And, and um, I mean, I don't know what the motivation would be for someone to lie about this. I mean, they don't, you know, they don't leave their contact information. It's not like they're, they're looking for fame or fortune. Uh, what do you think? Is this, is this phenomena real, Rosemary? I treat it as real, and uh, I have talked to more skeptical people who say, look, you know, we never heard about the black-eyed kids until uh, around the 80s, and then um, someone must have just started this up as an urban legend, now everybody's jumping in. Uh, there are too many connections uh, with these beings to other kinds of um, predatory entities that we've been dealing with throughout human history. And uh, I uh, consider it to be a, a shape-shifted form of yet another way for predatory entities to, to bother us. And it seems like once we get accustomed to one form, um, the, the entity or the phenomena, if it's not um, you know, personalized, it, it morphs into something else. And I think that's what we've got here. I suspect that uh, there are many more cases than we know about right now, despite the fact that so many have been posted on the Internet. When I started researching shadow people about 10 years ago, um, there were things posted on the Internet, you know, some cases, and I started researching and publicizing shadow people a lot. And um, this phenomenon also grew, and now you can find thousands of cases of shadow people. I think that uh, people suddenly, they read these cases and they suddenly realize, oh my gosh, you know, this is real. It's happened to me or it's happened to somebody I know. It was not my imagination. Have you had an encounter with a, a black-eyed person or has one of your, uh, someone that you know or maybe a client, so someone that you've done an, an investigation for, have, have, have they had an encounter with a black-eyed child? I have not yet encountered black-eyed children myself, and uh, I don't have any in my active cases uh, or even some of my recent cases that are now closed. Uh, I have received emails from people who, who um, 
have heard about the black-eyed children or they've uh, read about the gin and they make the connection to the gin and they want to tell me about them. So um, I, I am indeed getting reports about them. And uh, people are, when they have these encounters, they are genuinely shook up. Uh, I don't think people make these things up. Um, all of us deal in the paranormal. We all deal with uh, cases that are more projections or, you know, fantasies or stimulated by uh, having seen something on TV. And, um, you know, that's a hazard in the business. But on, on the other hand, um, people carry these secrets around for a long time sometimes before they feel comfortable with talking about them because they do fear ridicule. And uh, I, I think that's probably one of the factors here, that people have had these encounters and they either don't know what to make of them or they've shrugged it off as, well, maybe I just imagined they had black eyes or something, and then they read something that matches their experience, and suddenly they can't ignore it any longer. Well, uh, witness to that, the fact that we're talking about it now over the radio and people hearing this uh, may feel that it's time to unburden themselves. Just to receive this e email. My husband and I were on our way up north on I-75, which uh, you know travels from Detroit, Michigan, all the way down into Florida. But this uh, email is from Michigan. Uh, traveling way up north on I-75 during the afternoon. Luckily, it was not at our normal time in the evening. We have a little place in northern lower Michigan and often go up there for the weekends. As was our custom, we pulled in at our usual rest stop, and I went into the woman's restroom. As I was preparing to leave the room, I suddenly noticed a thin, dark-haired woman standing alone and staring directly at me. I instantly felt a terrible sense of dread, as though there was something deeply unnatural about her. I then noticed the eyes, which had been staring coldly at me, and they were completely black. I saw no color whatsoever and no pupils. I felt an extremely strong need to get away from her as quickly as possible, as there was something quite threatening about her, or quietly threatening about her. Her stare was devoid of any emotion other than something very cold and disconnected. You know, as I'm reading this email, uh, Rosemary, and it goes on for quite a while, but... Uh, it almost sounds like the accounts I hear from alien abductees talking about greys. And they, of course, have black eyes, solid black eyes. And people describe them as being cold and disconnected. Do you think, I mean, I know you, you, you tend to believe that they could be related to the jinn, but could they be ETs? They certainly could. And in fact, we, we really don't know how many entities are out there. Uh, interacting with us because a great deal of shape-shifting seems to go on. Uh, the jinn, for example, are known as masterful shape-shifters. We have many kinds of, of uh, alien entities involved in the abduction scenario. And we have cases where people have witnessed being shape-shift from one form to another. Uh, and they, they seem to do it right in front of them. Um, we have cases uh, of the reptilian kind and uh, among those where People think they're dealing with a human, and then suddenly they see reptilian characteristics come out, literally scaly skin and the reptilian eyes. And um, sometimes it's just for, for an instant, but it's an unmistakable sort of transformation. The universal reaction that people have to all of these forms is this dread. And uh, I have come to the conclusion that 
um, this is part of a stalking of human beings where that is the desired reaction. They want the dread because it weakens us. Uh, we we lose a lot of life force energy when we're frightened, and it's probably something that they literally use as a food source. Uh, there are many entities besides the jinn who are known as feeders, and non-human vampires are among those where the life force is literally vampirized off. So um, there's even the possible scenario that whoever or whatever is behind these manifestations is trying something out on us to see, you know, how well will this stick as uh, a tactic against human beings. Well, this uh, this email writer goes on to say, um, there was also something almost predatory about her, as though she was honing in on prey while she stood there so still. I had a strange sense of her feeling superior or stronger in some way. Again, the sense of a predator watching its prey. I left as quickly as possible, showing as little reaction to her as possible. I got back into the car and left. I have to say this was one of the most memorable brief experiences I've ever had around a person, especially a stranger. I have never been able to shake the unexplainable feeling that she wasn't human. They aren't. They they look like humans, uh, and they take that form, but there's really nothing human about them. I am very convinced of that. What do you think, they, do would not... do, what do you think they would do, Rosemary? I mean, if someone were to allow them into their car or into their home, what do you think would happen? We might have a missing person case on our hands. Hmm. Well, listen, Rosemary, uh, thanks for bringing this to our attention. Black-eyed children. Again, a relatively new... Uh, phenomena uh, only around for the last 25, maybe 30 years, and we're hearing about it. And if you go online, you'll you'll learn that this seems to be a growing, expanding uh, experience. People are writing about it more and more often. Uh, thank you for this, Rosemary. What uh, what's up next for you? I'm going to be speaking on after death communications and dreams at the end of this month, August. Um, at the International Association for Near-Death Studies in Arlington, Virginia. And, in fact, that's the subject of a, a new book that I've just put together that will be out in time for the conference called Dreams from the Afterlife, Messages from the Dead, Visions of the Past and Future. So that's been uh, my current project. Also still at work on my book on multidimensional portals, which will be out when I probably see you next in uh, Arizona for the UFO Congress. Ah, yes. Next February. All right, Rosemary, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, and have a great time. Rosemary L. Ellen Guiley, the, w- the website again, www.visionaryliving.com. And we'll come back uh, in just a few moments. Open lines now to the top of the hour as we broadcast live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome back. Our final broadcast from Kalamata, Greece, before we pack up and head on to Athens. We've been broadcasting to you for the last five weeks from the Elite City Resort here in uh, Kalamata. Uh, You know, uh, so much... Uh, of Greece, we associate with Greece, ancient Greece, of course, the ancient ruins, and uh, we were up in uh, ancient um, Messenia uh, last week and enjoying that very much. Um, an amazing, an amazing um, uh, location if you get down here to the Peloponnesian region of Greece. There are all sorts of ancient ruins, uh, but there are also um, ruins that aren't so ancient. Uh, yesterday, in fact, we were in um, a beautiful, a beautiful uh, area of Greece called Methoni. And uh, there is a um, 
a medieval castle, uh, which I believe dates back to the the 12th century, and it was occupied by the Franks and the the, the Venetians. Uh, so you know, when you come to Greece, don't just think it's all about ancient ruins. There are some wonderful medieval castles here as well, so we're enjoying it uh, tremendously, as I say, and uh, heading on to uh, Athens later today departing for Canada, and we'll uh, be back in Toronto midweek, and I will be coming to you live next Sunday from our studios in Toronto on Jefferson Avenue, Liberty Village. I have a good show lined up for you. Rodney Asher, filmmaker Rodney Asher, will be uh, with me. His documentary film, Room 237, explores hidden subliminal, if you will, messages within uh, Stanley Kubrick's film, the Shining, which was a, um, I believe came out in 1980 or 81, and it was an adaptation of Stephen King's book, The Shining. Uh, it's been several years since I've seen it. It's one of those films that the mighty Aphrodite does not like to have into the house. Uh, she had a horrible experience watching that as a, as a teenager, uh, and it's not one of her favorite films. However, uh, there's a lot more going on in that film, apparently, than we've been led to believe. So Rodney Asher, Room 237, next week on The Conspiracy Show, discussing the subliminal messages of Stanley Kubrick, uh, which apparently he sort of implanted in a lot of his films. And uh, just to give you a, 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 a wee tease, of course, several weeks ago, uh, as we commemorated the uh, anniversary of the lunar landing, the 44th anniversary of Apollo 11. Uh, we talked about uh, whether or not there, there was a, um, some sort of a hoax uh, perpetrated. The idea was that the uh, lunar landing did not happen for various reasons, and that it was actually uh, staged or, or recorded on a, uh, a sound stage by none other than Stanley Kubrick. Well, apparently in room 237, they, uh, Rodney Asher explores the possibility that Kubrick left hints or clues in The Shining that he, in fact, did film the lunar landing on a soundstage. Also uh, joining us next week, James D. Eugenio, our assassination researcher, uh, as we continue along in our JFK series as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. All right, let's uh, talk... Just about anything goes now until the uh, the top of the hour, and uh, we kick things off with John on hold from Toronto. Wants to talk fake moon landing. John, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. Thanks. Um, I heard your recent show on the fake lunar landing, and I was going to send you an email, but I couldn't get your exact email address, and a Twitter would have been too short for what I wanted to, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get anything said in uh, in uh, what is it, 140 characters? Yes. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to tell you was, I'm going to go from my email that I have here. The expert, he talked superficially of credibility problems with NASA using cameras in a hostile environment, and the statement of one of the astronauts about being concerned about stepping over a camera cable, which suggested a cable in a studio. And also he yes. referred to Stanley Kubrick and his special camera being used in a studio to create the lunar landing. And so what I did was I thought there was a lot more to it than what he was suggesting. So I Googled NASA cameras on Apollo 11 and found what I thought I would find, which was they had still cameras attached to the astronauts on their, on their uh, spacesuits. It was around their neck. It was on their chest. These were Hasselblad cameras. 
and they yes. were especially designed for the environment uh, in space, just like uh, you know the cameras that are used in nuclear plants or underwater under pressure. So those cameras that he was wondering how they would operate in a hostile environment were actually designed for that and housed for that. And on this mission, as in all missions at NASA at the time, the public view video uh, shots were video cameras, not the kind of camera Kubrick used. Kubrick uses a film camera, right. and it's actually a Panavision 70. Uh, and if he shot anything on uh, film, and you saw that on television, any expert would know that's not uh, videotape, that's uh, film. Right, the resolution, the difference in resolution that's is remarkable. Right. Anyone can tell. Yeah, and there was a video camera mounted on a tripod, outside of the lunar lander, which was wired to the lunar lander, so therefore there was a cable that astronauts had to be aware of. And if you go into Kubrick's special effects that he used in 2001 and the camera techniques, you're talking about highly sophisticated techniques requiring a great deal of time and numerous highly skilled professional technicians to achieve. And then if you go further and say, well, he shot this in the studio, then you're talking about, God knows, maybe 60 to 80 people of support technical staff, set designers, set builders, lighting crew, camera crew, sound technicians. And then you have to record and have lab staff if he's doing his film. And I could go on about it. I mean, there's just right, too right. many people. So then you'd have to say, are all those people part of a conspiracy and none of them is a whistleblower? It's hard to believe that that would be true. All um, interesting things that you bring up, uh, um uh, John, uh, it's interesting because I just I received another email on this very matter. Oh. Now, before um, I read that email, yes. because I, you, you mentioned the cable, and people listening at home um, may not have heard the, the clip that we played from Buzz Aldrin. Yes. Now, Tim Spreen back in studio, if you have that Buzz Aldrin clip, we've played it a couple of times, so let's play it again, and then people will know what John is referring to and what my, my, my next email is referring to. Tim, if you could play that Buzz Aldrin clip. He writes about his experience in an autobiography called Magnificent Desolation. All three of us decided not to participate in the, uh, Apollo uh, 11. Why would we go there? You just get overawed, you set up a, a series of expectations, and <laughs> you're, you're bound to get disappointed one way or the other. I thrived on addictive substances, uh, alcoholism, and clearly that began to predominate in my unstructured life. It sounds like it may have been more difficult just to plan one human life than it was to plan that mission to the moon, at least for you. Well, yeah, it, it certainly was. What a bodacious challenge confronting people on Earth. We were obsessed with doing the best that we possibly could so that we wouldn't trip over the wire that goes out to the TV camera that's recording all that we're doing. That's Buzz Aldrin, whose new book is called Magnificent Desolation. Yeah, it makes perfect sense what he's saying. It does, it does. Yes. Uh, I think we've got a break coming up here. Okay. And um, on the other side, I'm going to read this email from uh, Michael Hernandez, uh, who adds to, uh, to what you were saying, John. Okay. But listen, great information. Thanks for the call. You're welcome. And uh, appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Bye. Back with more as we broadcast from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. 
Welcome back. Broadcasting one final time from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. Okay, so before the break, we heard from uh, John in Toronto, who, who had some excellent points regarding our show, a recent show, on the uh, Apollo 11 lunar landing hoax, quote, un, end quote. And uh, he, he talked about the, uh, the Buzz Aldrin clip that we played, and I played it again for you, in which Aldrin uh, talks about you know, having to take great care as so not to trip over the, uh, the cable that connected to uh, the, uh, the camera which some have uh, suggested is, is evidence. And just for the record, I never uh, you know, indicated one way or the other. I just simply threw the, the clip out there and asked what you thought. Uh, I mean, I find the, uh, the evidence suggesting there's a hoax intriguing, but again, I, I continue to lean towards the fact that we did, in fact, land on the moon. However, the Buzz Aldrin clip um, that I played... Uh, Again, mentions uh, Buzz mentions you know taking great care to trip over this cable that's connected to the camera, which again has led some to believe okay they did shoot it in a studio with cameras with you know which obviously have uh, video cables. So here's uh, an email from Michael Hernandez on the same topic. I enjoy listening to your show, but your recent comments about Apollo 11 and the audio clip you play from Buzz Aldrin, which you use to suggest that the Apollo 11 was a hoax, are ridiculous. You should at least do a cursory investigation about the television cable that Aldrin was speaking about before assuming that Aldrin was hinting that Apollo 11 was being filmed on a soundstage. Here for your education, <laughs> a little bit of uh, sarcasm there perhaps, uh, here for your education is a copy and paste from Wikipedia. Quote, in addition to fulfilling President Kennedy's mandate to land a man on the moon before the end of the 1960s, Apollo 11 was an engineering test of the Apollo system. Therefore, Armstrong snapped photos of the uh, LEM so engineers would be able to judge its post-landing condition. He removed the TV camera from the MESA and made a panoramic sweep, then mounted it on a tripod 68 feet or 21 meters from the LEM. That was the, uh, the, lunar, the, the, the landing module. The TV camera cable remained partly coiled and presented a tripping hazard throughout the EVA. And uh, with that, Michael Hernandez signs off. With that, I must say, bless your heart. Sincerely, Michael Hernandez. Okay. So there you go. That's our uh, wrap, I think, on the Buzz Aldrin clip and the lunar landing uh, hoax. Uh, also wanted to um, mention, or, uh, re or read this, uh, a quick email from... Uh, Diane, let me see here. Diane is listening in on one of our affiliates. There's the email here. Diane is listening in on KROSAM. That's uh, 1340 in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, it's a fairly lengthy email, just basically saying enjoying the show and was very interested in hearing more shows with uh, director Kevin Booth. Kevin Booth, of course, the film director. Uh, perhaps best known for his uh, friendship with uh, uh, comedian, uh, now, now his name has escaped me, Hicks, a uh, great comedian by the name of Hicks. Anyway, uh, he's also known for his uh, films, American Drug War, Parts 1 and 2. And we recently had Kevin on the program talking about American Drug War 2, Cannabis Destiny, uh, which was talking about uh, efforts by some to... 
uh, decriminalize uh, the use of marijuana, and also its medicinal uses. In, in the film, there was a, a young uh, child in the state of Montana or Washington, I believe, who was battling uh, a terminal cancer, and uh, this child's life was prolonged, supposedly, uh, using cannabis oil. Now, I thought this article was rather apropos. This was a, uh, a recent article from Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is a, a neurologist and the chief medical reporter for CNN. And here's what Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, recently had to say about marijuana. The article is entitled, Why I Changed My Mind on Weed. Over the last year, he writes, I've been working on a new documentary called Weed. The title Weed may sound cavalier, but the content is not. I traveled around the world to interview medical leaders, experts, growers, and patients. I spoke candidly to them, asking tough questions. What I found was stunning. Long before I began this project, I had steadily reviewed the scientific literature on medical marijuana from the United States and thought it was fairly unimpressive. Reading these papers five years ago, it was hard to make a case for medical marijuana. I even wrote about this in a Time magazine article back in 2009 titled, Why I Would Vote No on Pot. Well, I am here to apologize. I apologize because I didn't look hard enough until now. I didn't look far enough. I didn't review papers from smaller labs in other countries doing some remarkable research, and I was too dismissive of the loud chorus of legitimate patients whose symptoms improved on cannabis. Instead, I lumped them with the highly visible malingerers, just looking to get high. I mistakenly believed the Drug Enforcement Agency listed marijuana as a Schedule One substance because of sound scientific proof. Surely they must have quality reasoning as to why marijuana is in a category, is in the category of the most dangerous drugs that have no accepted medicinal use and a high potential for abuse. They didn't have the science to support that claim, and I now know that when it comes to marijuana, neither of those things are true. It doesn't have a high potential for abuse, and these are very legitimate medical applications. In fact, sometimes marijuana is the only thing that works. Take the case of Charlotte Fiji, who I met in Colorado. She started having seizures soon after birth. By age three, she was having 300 seizures a week, despite being on seven different medications. Medical marijuana has calmed her brain, limiting her seizure to two or three per month. I have seen more patients like Charlotte firsthand, spent time with them, and come to the realization that it is irresponsible not to provide the best care we can as a medical community, care that could involve marijuana. We have been terribly and systematically misled for nearly 70 years in the United States, and I apologize for my role in that. That's Dr. Sanjay Gupta from CNN in an article entitled, Why I Changed My Mind on Weed, and I'll uh, send that out as a tweet uh, for those who follow me at Richard Sarrett. All right, so uh, that would certainly lend uh, a great deal of credence, I would think, to uh, uh, American Drug War II, Cannabis Destiny, Dr., or uh, rather, uh, Kevin Booth. So thank you for the email uh, on that score. Now, the last hour, we were talking about, uh, or on a, on a recent show, I should say, we were talking about solar storms. 
And uh, for those who missed it, I just wanted to play this a quick clip uh, from a, um, a contributor, a scientist with Discovery Magazine, or Discover Magazine, recently appearing on uh, Fox News, talking about the very real and present danger presented by solar storms. So, Tim, back in uh, Toronto, if you've got that clip, let's hear that now. Experts warn that a massive solar storm is set to erupt right here, and the devastation could total as much as $2 trillion. Corey Powell, editor-at-large, Discover Magazine. How, how come folks like you are so worried about solar flares in 2013? Well, so we know from watching the sun for hundreds of years, the sun goes through an 11-year cycle, being relatively quiet, very active and violent. Uh, 2013 is the peak of that 11-year cycle. So we know, like, almost like clockwork, every 11 years you go through a bad period, and each 11 years, as we have more technology, we have more satellites, we can depend more on our electrical infrastructure, we're more vulnerable. If we get hit with a solar flare, what does that do to us? What, what does it do to our technology? What does it do to our civilization? Right, so what you're looking at here, uh, the, the sun, th this, is, this is million degree plasma coming out of the sun. Million. Million degree. Uh, coming out at 300 to 500 miles per second. Um, it travels through space, it hits the Earth, and actually the biggest thing that it does is, it, this is all, it's, a, it's all magnetized. The Earth is kind of a magnet. It wiggles everything, and that makes electrical currents that go crazy everywhere. So it can lead to blackouts, it can overload your satellites, it can fry radio transmissions and GPS transmissions. That's happened so that's, on a small scale before. Talk about the trillion dollars in damage. Uh, there you go. Uh, just a, a quick uh, bite from uh, Fox, uh, Fox News, I believe, and that was a scientist from Discovery Magazine talking about uh, solar storms, a very real, uh, le con legitimate concern. And we narrowly averted an EMP catastrophe, we're told, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the end of July. And there's more in store. We are, as, we, as I say, in the peak of this 11-year solar cycle. And uh, scientists now are looking at very closely what could happen during the next four months as we continue along into this, this window, this peak. Uh, a, a major, what they call a, a, a coronal mass ejection, could unleash an electromagnetic pulse that could impact the Earth, particularly, uh, we're told, the eastern seaboard of the United States, and could affect something like 40 million people, knocking out power grids, and not just for a period of uh, hours or days or weeks, but perhaps even years. So just think about the consequences of that for a moment, uh, being uh, left alone uh, in the dark for years, no power. Uh, think about what would happen to, to hospitals. Think about uh, communication, navigation, uh, security, and the breakdown of uh, civility after uh, you know, that neighborliness wears off after several weeks. Anyway, just uh, something to think about. And uh, Ron Patton uh, joined us as we discussed solar flares not too uh, long ago. Again, uh, just a heads up, coming up next week, our first show back in uh, Toronto, Rodney Asher, the filmmaker, and uh, we'll talk about Room 237, his documentary about Stanley Kubrick's subliminal messages hidden inside the, uh, the movie The Shining, and James DiEugenio will be back uh, as we continue along with our JFK series. Now, we've got about two, three minutes left here. I think I've got just enough time for this. Uh, had to, this was kind of a laugh-out-loud moment for me. Recently on, uh, on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, President Barack Obama uh, there, it was kind of uncomfortable because Leno had to sit there and listen to Obama 
claim that there is no domestic spying going on in the United States. Uh, Tim, do you have that clip at the ready? Can we hear that? A lot of these programs were put in place before I came in. Uh, I had some skepticism, and I think there's a, we should have a healthy skepticism mm -hmm. about what government's doing. I had the programs reviewed. We put in some additional safeguards to make sure that there's federal court oversight as well as congressional oversight, that there is no spying on Americans. Uh, we don't have a domestic spying program. So we don't have a domestic spying program. Well, if you believe that, what is it they say about the Brooklyn Bridge or uh, Swampland in Florida? Uh, I think we have time for this one as well. This was uh, one of my favorite sort of TV commentators in the United States, Judge Napolitano, uh, who used to be with Fox. I think he got turfed from there. But this was Judge Napolitano commenting on the National Security Agency's spying program and the Fourth Amendment. What the president said and what the president has done is as distressing as anything I have observed the government doing in my entire professional life. This president has orchestrated an end run around the Constitution of gargantuan proportions. He approved it. He authorized it. He knows its, its extent. He did it in secret and now he's denying that it exists. The federal government, in order to make their job of catching bad guys easier, they are determined to catch bad guys. God bless them for that has decided to sweep up the private communications of everybody else as well. If the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment were written for anything, it was written, they were written to prevent exactly that. For he's him not to go, the only president who no, authorized not the these kinds of... George W. Bush did it as well, and you and I debated it, and I expressed a similar view at the time. This is far grander in scope. You just had Congressman Justin Amash on. He is correct. This is every email and every phone call and every text of every American who uses a telephone or the Internet and who doesn't going back to early 2011 and the president has denied it. All right. Uh, there you go. Uh, listen, um, so long from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. I'll talk to you next time live from Toronto, our studios at uh, AM 740, our flagship station. Thanks to Tim Spreen for production and uh, all of you listening at home. It's been uh, great to be here, but it's even going to be better to get home. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.